Good evening and welcome to Ryan and Ryan Education Today. This is episode 16 of season one. I'm Ryan Limley along with my co-host Ryan Weary. Good evening, Ryan. Hey, happy holidays. We're getting close. We are getting close. Uh, no break for us though. We will have uh, episodes drop on Christmas. So um, <laughs> we did not take off the holiday, right? That's right. We're working. We're working through it. Well, we, we've been having a, a bunch of fun and we're going to continue tonight. Uh, this is uh, part three of our talk with Dr. Jim Mahoney, the author of To Lead is to Teach, among many other things. Um, in our podcast, we try to break down and provide insight into issues facing today's rapidly changing educational environment. We look at issues from the student, teacher, parent, and administrator perspective. Uh, good evening, Jim. Thanks for coming back on. Hey, Ryan. Ryan, happy holidays to both of you. Glad to be here. And so I would say this, if you're uh, tuning in and, and you missed parts one and two of, of what we're calling the Mahoney Three, uh, I would hit that pause button and, and go back and, and listen to those as we got a lot of uh, Jim's backstory. We talked about uh, some initiatives that we're working on. We happen to be working on together uh, related to the Strengths Finder. Um, and, and we're just talking a lot about the book. So if you haven't listened to this, uh, please you know go back and, and do that now. Uh, but this episode's gonna be a, a bunch of fun. And, and Jim, I had mentioned these three episodes are, are titled The Mahoney Three. Um, that is my uh, one of my favorite things out of the book in that you closed a bunch of chapters with what's called The Mahoney Three. Uh, how'd you come up with that? Tell us a little bit more of the backstory on that. Well, I think the backstory is uh, whenever you want to communicate something, it's uh, there's no rule in communication. Do it in three. Three's memorable. It's sticky. It's easy. Now, that doesn't mean everything can be in threes, but I, I'm really cognizant of that. And it's really interesting when you look around you'll see all kinds of institutions. I don't care if they're hospitals or businesses, you'll often see three to describe it. Even at Ohio State, when I went to a down to, there's a pizza truck that sets up at the Ohio State football games. And I had to laugh because there was three big signs above it. It said, order, pay, leave. Uh, so the idea of three is a, a powerful communication tool. So what I tried to do at the end of each chapter uh, was to give three practical ideas that you could do uh, to uh, carry out whatever message I was trying to communicate in that. But three is just a powerful one. So every time, whether I'm writing a sentence or I'm thinking about what are the concluding remarks uh, that I want to make. I'll start sometimes with the uh, at the beginning with the end in mind, uh, and it'll be three. I think there was a Saturday Night Live skit that was a three-step process process to fix anything, which was fix. So that was step one. It was step two, and fix it was step three. So I think you're right. I think you're right. It goes with that. So, <laughs> so well, let me ask same, you this: It's the same sort of thing, and you can come up with lots of lots of threes. Uh, I used to ask uh, groups when I'm working with, if you, uh, what are three things people 
would use three words they might use to describe you. Uh, so there's lots of threes you can use to initiate conversation, but it's a good way to remember things. It's sticky and it's easy. So did you write the, at the end of each chapter, did you write the Mahoney three before you wrote the chapter? After. After? But so I you- thought about it as I was doing it and I'd make a little note to myself and because I wanted these to be relevant, easy to use, clear activities and things that I had done, not things that you could do. Uh, I can remember years ago when I was taking the education courses to become a teacher and I used to have professors talk about, well, you could do this, you could do that. And I used to think, well, if this is so good, how come you never do it? Uh, So (laughs) I like, so the things that I put in there are are things that uh, I've done, that I've learned from others. And uh, so that was the whole idea behind it. Well, there were some interesting points in there. Um, And we had talked a a little bit in the very first one about that you had done those chapters on building relationships and and chapter 16 specifically talked about building constructive relationships. And in it, in the Mahoney three, um, you talked about using the Gallup Q12 survey at a staff meeting. I will not lie to you. I had never thought of that before I read that. I was like, wow, what a great idea. Yeah. I mean, the, the Q12 is a long established. I think you talked to Tim Hodges. He's an expert on it. The Q12 is a long established engagement tool. And it consists of 12 questions. And these 12 questions have been highly correlated to productivity. They're a proxy for all kinds of things. And you can get these online. I don't recommend people write them down, make a monkey survey. It's Gallup's intellectual property, but I think they're $15 each and you can, it's, it's a great staff engagement tool and it gives you a start. When you look at 12 questions, they're easy to understand. Uh, there's a book that goes with it. There's several actually, but the original one was called first break all the rules. That's the first time I had ever heard of it. And, uh, it's a, it's a great tour. The other part that you can create your own, but you want to make, so staff meetings, in my opinion, are, and we used to do this where we were constantly thinking, and board meetings, how to engage people. Because when people are engaged, they're sitting up, paying attention, contributing, and when you engage them in ways that are really productive and you're teeing in on what they want, uh, what they care about, they're happy to contribute. And when you don't, uh, they'll either be disengaged and not want to come, or they'll be engaged in things that are, are counterproductive, to be honest. Uh, I've never met a board in the world that uh, doesn't want to count paper clips if that's what you uh, want them to do. And uh, so I, I, I'm really, I, I really think about meetings a lot differently than I used to. I used to think meetings were... Uh, this is where he shares some information, get a few opinions, call it a day. But now uh, I try to be a lot more intentional about having those and think of this as a class. What are the outcomes you want from this meeting? Why are you having this meeting? Is there a better way to do what you're going to do than have a meeting and save time? So that you're being very intentional about that so that when you do that, you want to engage them 
And the Q Q twelve is is a, if I were to go if I were to go to a, a new school right now, or a new district, honestly, the first tool I'd give them is that because it gives me an immediate pulse on the sense of engagement that people have, and then from that I can begin working on two or three things uh, that are not specific content related things. It's like you're not trying to initiate a literacy program. Or, you know, there are other there are other devices. I don't know whether I put it in that chapter, but it's one I've used is uh, just make up a red light. And I remember when I first went to the county office as superintendent, uh, I, I met with each employee and they had a red light or they had a stoplight ahead of time. And the red was tell me the things you think we ought to stop. Uh, the green was tell me the things you think we should absolutely keep doing. And the yellow, what are the things you're not sure about? And after all those short conversations, I had a sort of a pulse of at least the organization. Uh, you know, I don't have a, uh, doesn't give you a path, but it gives you some ideas about where you might need to go. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Actually, I've never heard of that one either. So let me, let me ask you one more book-related question before sure. we kind of move off of that. Um, one of my favorite chapters in the book um, kind of goes, relates back to the title. Um, if you can't teach, you can't lead. Yeah, and, I, and I'll tell you where that really came from, especially. We, uh, we did a research project with a, a professor from the University of Michigan. He and a colleague and then two of ours, and they had studied highly effective teachers across three states. And when they were all finished, it was interesting because uh, the, the professor from Michigan with lots of experience who had written many books, his name's Robert Quinn, had written many books on uh, organizational behavior, CEO. He was a business college professor. And he said to me, he said, you know, it's interesting because I found that the skills that highly effective teachers need are the same ones that CEOs need. Uh, and that having a classroom is a highly complex organization and it requires those myriad approaches to be successful. So now I'm gonna fast forward. I got a call one time from, uh, I won't name the organization, but it was an international CEO uh, who was retiring. And he had a year to do other things. And he wanted to spend his time using lots of his associates uh, involved in education. And he had a theory. So uh, he called me because one of our board members knew him. And we talked and I said, I think it's a good idea. But I said, what if I put about 10 people in the room who have nothing but experience in what you want to talk about? And they give you real feedback. And would that be helpful? He said, yes. I said, they're not going to tell you it's a great idea if they don't think it's a great idea. Do you want that kind of feedback? Or he said, no. And he was very sincere. And he came and people offered ideas. And it was, it was, it was a really good meeting. But I said to him when we started, and it was, uh, uh, it was kind of a, a silence when we started. I said, I have a question for you. I'm trying to imagine what would happen if I had come to your office and said, 
I think you guys in your business could do better if educators helped you. And here's, uh, I'd, I'd like to tell you how we could really help you. You could improve whether or not you would have listened to me. And I believe him when he, when he said, no, I, 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 his sincerity, I said, well, you represent an N of one. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, those two things really made it very clear to me that we should no longer ask or even say, well, gee, teachers are like CEOs. Well, how about let's just flip that script. Good CEOs are like teachers. And I find it ironic because I've had I've had business people tell me that you know, they want their kids to be anything other than teachers. And the ironic thing is if they're any good, that's exactly what they are. Because when I think about the best leaders that I ever had, whether when I was in the army or in any role I ever had, they're teaching, they're instructing, they're inspiring, they're motivating, they're correcting. They're doing all the things, giving feedback. They're doing all the things that really highly effective teachers do. So it's, it's like you used to get in these arguments when I coached. Well, he can coach, but can he teach? Uh, and it's just kind of an inane argument because if you're a good coach, you're a good teacher. It's impossible to be a good coach and not be an effective teacher. Now, uh, so I see these as, uh, and, and to me, it, it pays honor to the teaching profession because uh, it is the one that makes all others possible. But what's interesting is the people who are successful in other fields, uh, particularly those who lead other people, they absolutely, in my opinion, have to be teachers. And that's really the central thesis of the book. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and the book, as we're kind of winding that conversation down, I, I would highly recommend to anybody that's even considering teaching, parents, uh, it's a, you know, a good read, even if for students that like to read. Um, so let's kind of take a minute here and, and move away from the book for a second. And okay. We were kind of talking before we started recording um, about Strengths Finder and how excited I am to be part of that project. And, and for us, I think truly a game changer. Um, and so I know that that you're excited about that too, because we've been working together on it for a couple of years. Sure. Talk to me about what else in education that that you see that you're just really excited about. I, you know, I think that for me, it's it's always about new approaches and ways. For example, when we look at all the digital technology, um, there's there's I, it's kind of funny. English teachers, I don't, I don't know that I'm excited about it, but I always find these things interesting, and I can get excited about. It. For example, I don't know what's going to happen to English teachers because this artificial intelligence is getting so good at writing passages now that are original. Uh, you, you'll wonder what is uh, plagiarism. Uh, but I think we have these tools that always lend possibilities when we think how, how to exploit them in ways that can promote student learning. The thing that I love is the space between teachers and kids will always remain the same. But our tools with which to help them grow and become and to operate successfully in a world that is rapidly changing are gonna change. 
uh, our values may remain constant and probably should, but the tools and the way we learn and the expectations we have uh, are going to change. Uh, I mean, you remember, well, no, you two are probably too young to remember, but you know, there was the classic spelling test. Uh, I, I don't know anymore. I have, you know, kids don't use cursive. They say, well, why would I? And so there are things that we have to let go of, know which ones to let go of. And what, what, I, what I'm excited about always are new ideas, new approaches. And then the other part that I think we're seeing is the connection to workforce development, that there are lots of paths for kids. They're all gonna have different paths. But while I was a kid, it might've been, well, the path that uh, going to college, a four-year school may have been the most desired path. I'm not sure that's true today at all. We're, they all have value. And our job is to help kids find the pathway that works for them because eventually we want them to get a job. We want them to uh, contribute in ways that allow them to use their strengths, but it's not pigeonholing somebody. But that's why I like strengths too, because you know the, the founder of strengths, Don Clifton had it right when he said, what if we study what was right about people versus what's wrong? So the part that I think that if I were a beginning teacher again, I would, uh, there'd be lots of things out there that you could use many more than what I had. And, and I visited a social studies class not long ago, and I was blown away by all the things the teacher used to make it interesting and relevant. And I thought every tool we used in there was non-existent when I started. I mean, when I started teaching, and it may say something about me, uh, I mean, the, uh, the overhead projector was big time technology. The only ones who had that were the bowling alleys. <laughs> and so when we got that, it was a big deal. Mm. So I watched him seamlessly. When you talk about a topic, suddenly he's bringing up on the screen a three minute clip. And then he's asking kids to get out their iPad and do this piece. And so, but, I, but his enthusiasm was still there. It was exciting for me to watch. So I guess I think it's, uh, you have to still want to make a difference with kids and contribute to their learning. That's the value part that won't change. And the part that's exciting is uh, all the tools. And then what we consider a school someday. School may not be a place. School is going to be what is taking place. And I suspect there'll be lots of other kinds of arrangements in the future uh, that we can't imagine. Uh, so those things excite me because they're new. And I like new things and I like learning. And so I, I think those, there'll always be opportunities there. I don't think it'll ever get stale. If it gets stale for you, you should do something else. Yeah, I, I feel the, the words efficient education comes to mind when I look at the way, at least I personally used to teach versus what I do now. I just feel like I'm, you're more focused, you're more, you know, data driven, you're more like, all right, I got to hit this and then I got to hit this, but, but there's a little bit more um, entertainment value in it also, which is a little different because you only have a snapshot for a kid, especially when they're used to having everything now and their, and their communication is now, right. And their results are now their food is now. <laughs> so so I think that translates in that education too. 
Um, yeah, yes. and I think part of this is customization. I mean, I, yeah. I can imagine someday some kid has a has a playlist of things they need. Uh, I mean, if we can customize tennis shoes, if we can customize almost everything you can think of, why wouldn't we customize or tailor in some way uh, the playlists of kids based on their differences, based on their needs, all of it informed by data, et cetera, and to do it to where it's not overwhelming. Uh, it does, as Ryan says, it's efficient, but it's, it's effective too. When something's just for you, when somebody scratches where you itch, it works. So let me ask you this question then on, on the flip side of that, if, if you were a first year teacher, is there anything out there that, that you get concerned about anything we should be cautioned against? Well, I think one thing that we should all pay attention to in my mind, you have to remember, I, uh, while I support choice, I am a public school advocate and my message all those years, uh, and when I had the uh, privilege of, of being superintendent was let's make our choice the best choice. I'm not going to argue about whether or not the others have the right to exist. And we're going to see many, many more of those. So it's always going to be a threat and it's going to be a bigger threat now in rural areas because they were, they were held immune because of distance for a long time. Well, the internet has made it less so. And I think there's lots of people who look at, kids as FTE and numbers and money. And I think it, we ought to double down on our efforts to provide public education because uh, like Horace Mann said, it's the greatest equalizer ever created. And I really believe in that, but I think there's always going to be a threat to it. There, and the threat is uh, just like I often say, uh, uh, Amazon up until a few years ago, it's still the largest retailer in the world. They didn't have a store. Facebook's the largest social media company and they don't own any content. Quicken Loans Arena, third large, or not the arena, but they sponsor the arena in Cleveland, but Quicken Loans is the third largest mortgage lender in the world and they don't own a bank. Uh, that Uber's the largest transportation company in the world and they don't own a vehicle. Do you think somebody may be the largest provider of K-12 services to kids someday and they may not own a school? So I think that's part of the thinking. And I want those people that have futuristic as one of their strengths because they're thinking about what the future might look like. Uh, and, and for it to be like they asked, I think it was uh, Winston Churchill, reporter asked Winston Churchill, uh, you think history will be good to you? He said, I know it will be. And the reporter looked at him and said, well, how can you be so sure history is going to be good to you? And, you know, you can envision him with this cigar, pulling it out of his mouth and answering her because I intend to write it. Uh, so I, I, I think uh, we have to always be cognizant of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how does it help kids uh, into their future, not our past. So I think that's the, it, 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 think about this. It's almost like, uh, for many things, the thing that excites us is also that which scares us, you know, leading a, a large group into unfamiliar territory. That's both exciting. And it's also frightening. 
Uh, anybody who's ever played a varsity sport, those few seconds before tip-off or kickoff, you know, the thing that both excites you also, it makes you anxious. And I think that's true in education. The things that excite us also are the things that if we're not careful can undo us. Which is a great segue uh, talking about um, in our, we were talking about technology and how we could use it. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that we have to combat in education, at least it seems like right now, is misinformation and via social media. And, you know, it was exciting when social media came out and we, and, you know, we look to use it still in education for our benefit. But, you know, how do we combat that kind of misinformation, whether it's litter boxes we've talked about before on the podcast or whether it's, uh, you know, things that, uh, are, you know, up-to-date information that we kind of have to pay attention to. Yeah, I tell you, this is, this is, that, this is that exact thing. Uh, it's both, it, it's, it's almost, I'll go back to one time I met with the, uh, I went with Tom Mooney. Tom's deceased now. Tom was the head of the Ohio Federation of Teachers, and he was on their governing board, uh, nationally so i went to a meeting with him to talk about value added and uh there was somebody there that basically said look this can be used as a weapon and we should never use it. we should shut it down right now and i said i understand that but i said if i took your argument then i'd shut the internet down too because the internet offers all kinds of opportunities but there's also a dark side to the internet too and our job would be how do we uh, mitigate the dark side because we don't want to lose the benefits of the upside. And the same is true with social media. And when we talk about this, about misinformation can be quickly spread and it is. And once it's believed, it's hard to get people to unring the bell. And that's a hard one. That is a hard one. And this country is faced with that issue because they're deciding right now, as we speak, and Twitter is in the hands of somebody new. There is this ongoing debate about free speech. Can you say anything you want to say? And censorship. Who's censoring whom? So when we talk about this, that's playing out nationally and it plays out locally. Uh, it used to be when I was superintendent, uh, rumors would be spread about things we were doing at the swimming pool. Uh, well, we've come a long way. Now anybody can hop online, they can say whatever they want to say. And uh, there are ways to begin to combat that, but uh, it's an issue. And I wish I could say, well, you have to do step one, two, three. But that's not true because you saying that that's not true, sometimes it's sufficient. Sometimes it's just the start of a new argument. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that we ought not give up on those tools because there's some bad things that happen. What we need to do is to figure out how to mitigate the bad things and the misinformation. The same way, you know, you used to teach kids the difference between a fact and an opinion. Well, that, that lesson's got much deeper now as to how you find out whether or not there's something that's been said uh, is because you, if you find it on Wikipedia, does that mean it's true? Because you hop right on the internet and Google something and get a quick factoid, is that accurate? Uh, and we know those things aren't that both those are not true. So you try to figure this out. So I think it's a, I think it is, that's, uh, one of this century's biggest challenges 
uh, that remain for all of us. Yeah, and I would I would say that um, you know the the cell phone changed everything uh, for for that when a kid has a cell phone in his hand or his or her hand so easily now. Uh, I didn't go. I didn't have a cell phone in my and when I went to school. And you know we used to write notes. You know we we talked on the phone with cords. You know we did we did that after school. Uh, we hey meet me at at this place at the parking lot or wherever it was. Right. That's that's the way that we used to communicate. And it's just one of those changing things in education that we can use it for good. But you also have to you just have to pay attention to it. You know I, I think it's you have to have. You have to keep, you can't ignore it. I think that's one. Yeah, of the and, and you and we could applaud that during the Arab Spring that it helped to bring freedom to certain places in the Middle East. Well, it also can rally people whom uh, uh, whose plans are much more devious mm -hmm. and much more uh, harmful. Uh, so it does both. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. But it has it has made the speed of everything, because you're right. It, it's uh, quickened things. And just like you, you have debates in your school about well, can kids have cell phones? Okay, of course they can. Well, can they have them on all the time? And then you have some schools now that there's actually a device being sold, which essentially puts a lock on cell phones, and you collect everybody's, and then that infuriates people because they're worried about an emergency. So. You know, I always think about it as a, as a history teacher, uh, whatever happened nationally, it played out locally, too. Mm -hmm. So all those things are playing out locally as you wrestle with those. So let me let me kind of change the direction here a little bit. And these will kind of be related to, to things that excite you, your concerns, the misinformation. If you were heading back to teach at Warren High School in January. So we're, we're pulling you out of high school right. teaching retirement. Okay. Um, what advice would you give to students? Like if you were, you're talking to kids and they're good, they're in the eighth grade, they're going to be ninth graders next year. They've got all of high school ahead of them and, you know, great spot to be. I think we're all three envious of kids in those positions. What advice would you give them? Well, it's really two questions because it would be on the one hand advice I might give might be different than if I were teaching them. Not that I wouldn't be because if I were teaching them, I can tell you this, I'd, I'd start out the, the same way. This hasn't changed to, to build a relationship with kids because they're much more likely to take any advice or anything I say when I have a relationship with them and they find me as credible and trustworthy and I'm excited about what I'm teaching. You know, uh, I sometimes it's like uh, if you're not excited about it, why would they be? But, uh, you know, the advice part about it really relates to all the opportunities that are out there. And uh, be yourself. Oscar Wilde said this. Be yourself. Everybody else is taken. You all have strengths. And the question is not what job do your strengths prepare you for, but rather how can you use your strengths in what interests you? That's different because we don't have a model where we begin pigeonholing kids very early at all. Uh, and what we want to do is the uh, uh, is to uh, find things that allow you to channel your interest 
your passion and economic opportunity. I mean, if I were drawing one of those Venn diagrams, I'd like for kids to be able to figure out what interests you, what are you passionate about, uh, what are your strengths, uh, and what's the economic opportunity that may exist out there with respect to that. But you have lots, but, but I think there's some old things that don't change, show up on time, work hard, ask questions. Uh, I think those are timeless, but I would be, you know, know, know thyself would be at the top. And so when you do your portrait of a graduate and you talk about all those uh, non-cognitive areas the community cares about, uh, this is knowing yourself and grit and perseverance and all of those things. Uh, know yourself and then figure out uh, how I can apply more of myself to something that uh, can provide economic well-being and, or something that contributes to the community. And finally, the last thing would be, uh, if you want a helping hand, look at the end of your own arm. Uh, if you want some, I always like this story about a, uh, a grandfather who told his kids he was Italian. He came to Ellis Island. He went in a cafeteria when he first arrived in New York City. And he sat down. And he was trying to figure out what was going on. And he said this lady came up to him and said, look, you start over there. You go through there. You pick out whatever food you want. You can have whatever you want. And then you pay for it at the end. And he told his grandkids, he said, I learned everything I needed to know about America in that cafeteria. If you want something, get up and go get it. And you have to pay for it. And the paying for it is having the skills that's required. Or, so it'd be those kinds of things. Uh, but I probably, I can tell you this, I wouldn't have more than three things I'd tell them. <laughs> and the, money, yeah. the, the advice would be down to three things they could remember. That if I saw a kid later on the day, I mean, I, I laughed the other day. We're talking about three. Here's one I had. I guess when you reach a certain age, as party, I had a physical last week. They now do a little mental thing. Uh, so they gave me uh, th three words. Uh, you know, it was uh, hippopotamus, uh, kitchen, and uh, chair. So she gave me those three words. I gave them back to her. About 10 minutes later, she asked me again, what were those three words? Well, I'm thinking three, so I gave them back to her. But it's also what they use as the mental acuity test. They use three. So uh, whatever advice I'd give the kids, I promise you I'd distill it down to three that they could relate to. So I got to talk with kids in January, and I'll, I'll stem it down to three basic. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I, I, honestly, I, I, I got the privilege of speaking a couple of weeks ago to all the kids at John Glenn High School. And I thought, okay, what are the three things? And I thought of three things that I thought fit with their career day and then built the case for those uh, to create some interest and to have them do some things the same way you would a lesson plan. It's just a big class. So when you do that, your class has gotten a lot bigger, but you know the kids too, and that's the great part. So I think you you sort of hit on this, but I want to go back and expand on this just a second. Uh, my next question was going to be advice for teachers, but I think you kind of hit on that when you talked about relationship building. Would that be your big yeah, uh, I think, advice key yeah, to teachers? Yeah, it's not about teaching the content. You know, I teach I I I teach it the 
a high university now and and there's an there's an old laugh line that goes uh elementary teachers love their kids high school teachers love their subjects college professors love themselves uh we could laugh at that there's uh maybe it's because there's a degree of truth to it but it's not it's not the content as much as you might think it's the content uh clearly you're teaching content but it is inside a, a relationship and you have to want to build relationships uh i remember when i started teaching i don't think this has changed i was just sincerely interested in all these new people i'm going to meet and what they're like and what they want to do and what motivates them and the desire to help them to become whatever they're going to become and that part has not changed and it's not just about teaching i i i'll give an example during the pandemic and i'm going to use this as a uh, not in the college that i work with at a high university but this was a college professor who uh did not want to have it he said i'm not going to do a zoom he refused to do a zoom he just somebody helped him to record lectures because he thought teaching was just simply lecturing i don't think it is uh pretty soon if that's all it is we'll get ai to do it better than any professor can do it uh it's about let relationships me, let me build on that one time just real quick yeah um i was actually talking to one of our elementary teachers who taught a virtual class during covid so she in the 2020 when we returned in the fall of 20 um, through 2021 we had kids that stayed home and she actually said that she is closer with those 20 to 25 students than she has any other class she's ever taught. You know, I have to tell you what, I, I mean, I can, uh, there, there are people who know how to build relationships virtually. Uh, and I, I think you absolutely can. What I don't think you can do is build a relationship to where you're, your lecturing and never have interaction. I, I have to tell you what, when when we had to go to fully remote Zoom, I wanted to quit. I thought because the technology, but I got some students to help me. And then pretty soon I started realizing there are things I could do via Zoom I couldn't do in the classroom. And it was better. So now that I'm back fully in class, I set aside three classes to do it via Zoom because there's some things we can do better by Zoom. And one of them is bring guests in. Uh, they're not coming to Athens. And if they, and sometimes up on the ridges where my class is, the technology is hard, but boy, whenever we do it by Zoom, it was easy for me to get some incredible guests that were relevant to them to visit and share. So that was a clear example of pluses and then as we learned i learned how to do breakout rooms so there's some things you could do uh but i can see why somebody might look at that depending on the nature of what they did and how they did it uh could, could have been very very powerful but it was hard it was hard so you you've been through I mean, I, I don't. This is not a knock. Okay, you've been through some generations of parents, right? You've you've right. had some you've had some parents through your teaching. You've had parents through superintendent. You've had parents through <clears throat> in in college. What advice would you give? 
And that might be, you know, different, a different, uh, you know, twine on the fork there for high school parents versus college parents versus whatever. But what advice would you give parents nowadays? Uh, it really, I think part of it is uh, it, it's be interested and involved. Uh, that's, but, but let kids fail. Let kids fail. This is how we learn. And I see a lot of people who want to be so protective of kids uh, to never let them fail. And I think that's a mistake. Now, we're not going to let them go do something incredibly stupid to learn from it. But it's okay to suffer some natural consequences. The report was due and suddenly you find yourself doing it at the last minute or making excuses for somebody. Let them have consequences. This is how we learn. So part of mine would be to be a little less protective and not assume the worst. Uh, and I, and I think there was, I think there clearly is, uh, it would appear that there are more parents today that are less likely to let go as what they did. Let's say when I first started, uh, but that, that would be my advice. It, it's, it's, it's to pay attention, of course but you don't have to have a video camera to the class. You don't have to be looking at every single thing. You don't have to assume if somebody didn't make something or get a perfect grade on something that uh, their future is doomed. It's not. And then as you get, get to high school, I still see people who believe that an ACT score uh, is determines your future. And it's just not true. It's just not true. I just get all the kids who had the highest ACT scores because I knew who they are and I'll tell you what they're doing. Uh, what I think I'm about to say is more true than that. Your I do is more important than your IQ. And parents support kids I doing. Stay involved in what they're doing. Uh, pay attention. It's hard. It's hard being a parent. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think there's nothing you can do better than to have a great school system that you trust that you can send your kids to and have relationships with those teachers and administrators because they want this to be a good experience for your kid too. And they're a little, they're a little more objective when it comes time to administer consequences. Uh, I mean, I found it myself, it was much easier to administer consequences to kids as an administrator than it was my own kids sometimes. Because with my own kids, sometimes I was far madder. Uh, I was far less patient. I was far less all those things that I, with, with kids that I liked at school, I, but it wasn't, it wasn't the same personal. But I wanted to still maintain a relationship with them. Yeah, the, and you know, the bar, when you said you know, the bar seems higher at times, uh, but there's so much more communication uh, that, that you can have with parents. Uh, and every parent has probably said this phrase, I'm going to give my kid better than the way I had it. Uh, sure. and, and I think that that, that goes with uh, the way that parents feel like that we have to get better. Like our, my kid has to be better than what I was. You know, I yeah, got an 18 twice on my ACT. I think I am okay, you know. So, so yes, I, I agree uh, with, with a lot of what you're saying. You know, there. Sometimes just take a deep breath. The other part I see sometimes parents who both work, and they're spending a lot of time. So they want to have email journals with an individual teacher. You can overwhelm teachers with emails, with a dozen questions that you want answered right then. 
and we're not taking the context depending upon who that teacher is and what they teach. I mean, they could have 150 kids. Uh, but the, the communication is clearly richer, deeper, and more frequent. But you have to figure out, this is where teachers figure out, look, here are the rules, when they're going to shut some things off, uh, and, then, and, and have some realistic expectations. But it's easier to have those at the beginning than halfway through. It's easier to establish those early. So that's both for teachers and kids. Let's figure out uh, how we're going to work together to help somebody. So if you were, were headed back into administration at, at my level, let's say you're talking to me, based on what your answers have been for teachers, for kids, for parents, what advice would you give administrators right now? You know, it it's here, here's the one that is true for all of them. I don't care whether it's a parent. It's, it's build relationships, and you build relationships through shared engagement and really knowing somebody and really getting to know them. And I think if I'm headed back to a, uh, 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 a principalship, I'm not ever going to be afraid to lead. But I always think of there are two quotes that I love, both from Eisenhower, that are very different. His first was this, leadership is not hitting people over the head. That's assault. Uh, so I try not to do this, but I try to be more of this one. Leadership is getting people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. And it's, again, about creating uh, shared spaces and engagement to where we're going in the same direction. And I'm going to be transparent and hold you accountable and hold me accountable. Uh, but there's an excitement about taking an organization which is composed of people and having people uh, go in the same direction. I, I don't know if you read, what, one of my favorite books is called The Boys in the Boat. The Boys in the Boat is a true story about the 1936 Olympic rowing team, about a bunch of hard scrabble kids from the state of Washington uh, who ended up going to the Olympics in Berlin and winning the gold medal in rowing. And in rowing, there's uh, uses lots of rowing terms, but there's a thing called swing. And I like that term. And it's when you get everybody oaring in the same direction. Uh, and that's what you're trying to do as a leader. Uh, so that it's we and us and together. And they really feel it. And those aren't just empty words. But it's really hard. Uh, but I'll tell you what. When things are operating on all cylinders, there's nothing more exhilarating, too, than to feel like you have a piece in helping set the direction for something that has so many implications. And I take what you do when you take a high school with several hundred kids in it and dozens of staff members and thousands of parental and student expectations, and you try to move that forward, uh, that's both exhilarating, exciting, disappointing, challenging. And that can be just before 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so it's just, but it's hard. But I do think, Coming back to the word is relationship and engagement and goals. So let me kind of, as we get ready to close out, is there anything else related to, to school right now that, that you would want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I would, you know, there's uh, there, I, I, I'm going to finish with this. There's a columnist I really like. He's written several books. 
His name is David Brooks. David Brooks, one of the books he wrote that I really liked is called The Social Animal. And it's really a sociological perspective of history, American history and people. And one of the things he talks about in it, he distinguishes the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And I like this idea. And I'll tell you where you see it played out. I don't know if it's because I'm old or not, but I read the obituaries. Now, I don't know whether it's because I'm old or I'm Irish and these are our sports pages. <laughs> but you read these and here's what resume obituaries are. He or she was chair of, led, named to this, uh, served in this role. They're legitimate achievements. They're the things that if you were applying for another job, you'd put on your resume. Families are proud of uh, makes sense. But there's also eulogy virtues. Eulogy virtues are much more likely to express the kind of person you were. Uh, she lit the room up with her positivity about and optimism about everything. Uh, her grand or his grandkids loved their nana or grandpa because of such a thing. It's, it's who you are. So I think uh, I often say to people, uh, live and lead the way you want to be remembered because you will be when people come back together at reunions at 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, I don't believe they will. So that'll be the, uh, end of part three of our podcast with the great Dr. Jim Mahoney. Uh, we'd like to thank Jim for joining us. Uh, Ryan, any parting thoughts from you? You know, I, I always, there are few people like Jim in education and around the world, really. And I, I just feel privileged to have him on our show. Uh, I could listen to him all day long. Uh, you know, I could listen to him tell stories. Uh, just one of those guys just w love to be around. And Jim, I'm, I'm so happy that you were here to join us. Uh, so thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Thank everybody for listening to Ryan and Ryan Education Today.